Hey everyone, welcome to Office Hours with Cloud Posse, your weekly dose of insider DevOps trends, AWS news, and Terraform insights, all sourced from our Sweet Ops community, plus a live Q&A you can't find anywhere else. It's February 7th, 2024. I'm your host, Eric Osterman. Real quick, I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud Posse. We are a DevOps accelerator for funded startups that helps teams who are overwhelmed with AWS. We do this by using our over 200 Terraform modules that have been battle tested and downloaded over 100 million times. No matter where you find yourself on this journey, we are here to help your startup launch better products faster so you can free up your bandwidth for innovation and nail your value delivery every time. So if you or your team has been banging your head against the wall with underperforming infrastructure, just head over to cloudposse.com slash quiz, answer a few quick questions, and we'll chart a roadmap for success free. So how can you maximize today's session? First off, our format is very informal. Engage as much as you'd like, ask questions. If you're curious about any of our open source tools or modules, go for it. For those on the recording, we host these calls live, so don't miss out. Join us live by going to cloudposse.com slash office hours. Again, cloudposse.com slash office hours. Now, I do have one ask. If you find any portion of today's office hours valuable, please share it with your team. Just head over to youtube.com slash cloudposse or send a short testimonial about the value you're getting in our Slack team. Just go to slack.cloudposse.com. Remember, we are not just simply creating content here. We are building a community and we can't do that without your help. So with that said, let's jump into this week's announcements. First one, uh, something we are very excited about is the uh, Terraform resource for the uh, AWS landing zones uh, just uh, merged. I think that happened yesterday or two days ago. Uh, that's going to be incorporated in the 5.36 release of the Terraform AWS provider. That means you'll finally be able to manage at least a small portion of Control Tower using Terraform. The, uh, has anyone, well, I guess no one's probably uh, tried using that <laughs> yet. It's only been two days uh, and you would have had to build your own provider. All right. Uh, next announcement. Uh, we. I, sorry, I was just going to add that I've read through the code and looked at a bunch of the examples and everything. And it's, it's definitely a step in the right direction, but it's like, um, it's almost like a resource that would just like let you provide like a cloud formation template to it. It's like very, like the inputs are not really, don't feel really need of Terraform. It feels like you're, you're, um, you know, passing some, some other format to, you know, to this one resource that then does a bunch of magic behind the scenes. It's not like a, you know, a bunch of resources and sub resources and things that you would expect. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't feel native Terraform to me, I guess yeah. is what I'll say, you know, in, in playing around with it. I mean, it, yeah. Okay. So the one thing it doesn't feel native Terraform, is it also probably more likely that the underlying API exposed by AWS is very rudimentary? Could be. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, the, the API call is literally just taking the document that it packages up and ships it to the to the endpoint and says like implement this. So it's hard to it's hard to really tell what's happening under the scene, uh, you know, behind the scenes. But I don't know. It just doesn't feel like you'll have the fine grain control over everything like you um, 
like you do in a lot of other instances. But uh, this is only version one of their yeah uh, of their it, control tower support. So hopefully, it, it, over time, it will be better. AWS conspiracy theory: All they've done was implement a uh, account factory dynamically on the back end for you, uh, and then this is just committing that to the code commit or something. Again, just unqualified uh, conspiracy theory. Yeah. All right. Uh, next announcement was uh, we we brought this topic up recently. I think it was two weeks ago or so based on chatter and a GitHub issue related to the controller for Terraform uh, managed by Weaveworks related to the Flux project. Um, there was uh, mentions there that uh, don't expect any updates. Well, uh, it has been confirmed now that Weaveworks is shutting down. They had raised uh, well over 60 million, um, but unfortunately it wasn't enough uh, to pull off what they tried to do. Um, it's really sad, I think, to see one of the earliest companies in this whole cloud native movement uh, fail, especially one that you know has its roots in open source. Um, and I mean, Flux, I mean, they, they, Weaveworks, they invented the term GitOps, basically. I, I, they, they certainly pioneered what it meant for Kubernetes through Flux. Uh, Flux is going to live on uh, through the CNCF. It's already a project there. And uh, they've committed to, you know, ensuring that enough resources are there that the project lives on. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what that means for Flux and, um, you know, what direction Flux will go without obviously this significant corporate sponsor of WeWorks behind it. Does that mean, you know, and also looking back, I wonder, you know, there, there was a time when uh, Flux and Argo CD almost merged, but then that fell through. Um, and I'm just wondering if those were some of the early indicators of some of these, this failure. Yeah. It always amazes me having been part of many startups that were not um that were not like you know these kind of like giant either home runs or absolute misses like they're like moderately successful like middle of the road kind of startups and it always amazes me that you can spend the kind of money that they've spent like yeah. 60 plus million dollars and yeah. not solve the problem that they're trying to solve <laughs> and not figure out how to monetize it and yeah. and you know all those things i mean it's just clearly like people who who are just you know it's you know whatever opm right it's other people's money so it's easy to spend and that's kind yeah. of the risk of of doing these things and if you hit it big you know everyone's happy but when you take 60 like Think about that sixty million dollars and flushing down the drain. It's uh, it's crazy to me, like that for what they're trying to solve. Like they should have either figured it out in the first couple of years, or you know, and, and cut bait then, or you know, or moved, you know, or been successful. Like that's kind of what I. That's kind of what I feel like. I don't know. It's just a weird commentary on the whole thing. No, I, I agree. I was trying to. I don't know. I guess it was not. Uh... I'm not finding it as fast as I was hoping to. There was interesting commentary on Hacker News about it. Uh, the the bulk of the comments of the first one here, the bulk of the comments seem to be that, you know, as soon as they took that money, the expectation is, you know, uh, to take radical risks and you have to turn it into 
um, something that's going to do a 10x return. And that's what I guess they were doing, the moonshot. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, an, it's an unfortunate consequence of taking venture capital. You can't, uh, you can no longer just build a great sustainable business. It has to be a moonshot. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it also is a function of how much venture capital you you raise like if you raise a couple million bucks so you can like actually get an idea to market and you know do all those kind of things and you start generating revenue and you need a little bit more to to you know grow a little bit bigger yeah but when you take these giant tranches of vc capital and then and they're on your board and now they own you know 50 40 50 percent of the company and you know whatever um you know, it becomes like, like everyone is burying their head in the sand and it's not like, it's not really about making a product and, and being successful anymore. It's about getting to the next, to the next raise or to the acquisition or to the IPO or to whatever. And, yeah. and like the actual mission of the company goes, goes astray really quickly when you, you start launching these things. And I mean, clearly some have been successful, but far fewer have, have been, um, you know, in, in doing these giant, you know, capital raises and, and do that. And it's, it's crazy. It is $60 million. Isn't even giant in, you know, compared to what's going on. So anyway, I'm just, I'm just kind of like blabbering yeah. about this, but it was just my reaction when I read it. <laughs> well, and as you said, it, you remind me of one thing, which was that apparently there was possibly an acquisition that was going to happen, but that fell through. Um, I'm curious who the suitor was. If anybody would guess, yeah, my guess would have been Microsoft, but who knows? Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Based on what I read, but I, I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, Jonathan, I see you raised your hand. Yeah. I just wanted to ask, isn't this also the problem that we're seeing with Terraform and Vault and, you know, basically the, the company that is at the center of a lot of this, uh, DevOps infrastructure as code that we all use and love and uh, has found even kind of at its level of success that it's not pulling in enough money and has to make really draconian changes to the business model that put itself at risk. Uh, I think we, we, we've seen a lot of these type of, of, uh, yeah. of almost either burning out, uh, flaming out at risk of flaming out. Um, it's quite frightening as someone who, you know, invests in these tools and uh, has to deploy stuff and plan for the future of deploying stuff that so many of them are, are being aqua hired or, or yeah. seem at risk of flaming out. Yeah. And when you look at the Hashi corpse of the world, then the numbers that start to become like crazy, because I think they've raised around $350 million and as a venture, you know, person who invested in that or, you know, collection of them, someone looking for a 10x return means that they somehow need to generate an exit of three and a half billion dollars to, you know, to essentially get their, um, you know, their return. So it's, uh, I don't know, think these, these numbers start to get crazy. And, you know, at some point, it's like, they can only do things that don't make sense to, you know, to keeping the mission of the company and um, the spirit of the product, or it's rare that they can keep those things intact while also satisfying 
all the people have put in these crazy amounts of money and looking for uh you know looking for returns out there yeah 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 and it's uh i wonder you know at some point this is going to have ramifications for future open source uh based companies and tooling um I, i'm not sure if the reverberations have hit yet but uh, it there's no there's a tipping point and i don't want to be caught up in that <laughs> Yeah, there's a there's a couple of interesting comments in the uh, in in the oh. comments here. Uh, oh, so Vlad Vlad said WeWorks didn't didn't have a business model, but HashiCorp has a business. They're just bad at it. It's a fair, pretty fair point on that one. And then <laughs> uh, Michael uh, Percival here says that uh, I reject the HashiCorp public position that open source is indeed. Oh, sorry, is dead and cannot be monetized. They failed to monetize it because they are actively rejecting their client requests. I send them buckets of money. They refuse to spend it and refuse to do what I'm asking of them. They promote their Terraform cloud, which we won't use. So, um, I mean, that's he, that that's a more detailed version of uh, Vlad's TLDR. Like, Ashikarp is bad at their business. <laughs> you know, kind of, but yes, I get it. But wasn't actually Weaveworks business almost identical to HashiCorp in the sense that they commercialized Flux and made a, a hosted solution with dashboards, which is identical to what HashiCorp did with Terraform and made a, a dashboard essentially and a, a CD product around it. Sort of. <laughs> they, they did. I guess didn't add up. Yeah. Well, it looks yeah. like Vlad wants to say something. He has his hand. Yeah, Vlad. Yeah, one more thing to note is that we are all discussing what's public here. There is a lot of drama and gossip and a lot of stuff that is happening or that is not being discussed in public about this and that is more or well known. Just wanted to put that out there. Both the uh, about HashiCorp, about WeaveWorks. Like, tech is very much gossip girl. And what we are seeing in uh, press releases and LinkedIn posts is very often only a tiny, tiny part of the story. That 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 probably goes without saying. I'm just curious, uh, any watering holes one can learn more about those things? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> 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 Awkward silence there. Okay. Uh, well, that's actually an interesting segue into another topic. Uh, I'm going to go out of order here, which uh, is uh, jumping over to once um, by DHH. So they have launched a new brand or new company uh, with a interesting kind of premise. Uh, you know, it used to be back in the day you bought software and, you know, you could run that software pretty much as long as it was there and it didn't need like a critical patch or update. It would just work. Um, and we've since been conditioned to uh, use SaaS and there's a lot of value in SaaS. Don't get me wrong. But at some point we get we are literally SaaSed to death. And we are spending so much money on SaaS. We have no control on when they pull features remove features, raise their prices, and that's a liability for a business. So they've uh, started this company with this idea of, let's go back to brass tacks and sell software that uh, isn't based on a subscription, 
that is affordable for the masses. And in that they have uh, released this campfire product as one of their first products, $299 fee one time for that major release, right? So the next major release, you would have to uh, pay some sort of an upgrade fee, presumably it doesn't go into that. Uh, but unlimited seats, you know, you host it however you want to host it. They talk about down here below some of the hosting requirements. Like if you have 10,000 concurrent users, mind you, you're spending $299 for those 10,000 concurrent users. So that's not too bad. Uh, but yeah, you're, you would uh, want to have a machine with a little bit of more horsepower, but this is pretty uh, insignificant these days uh, for that many simultaneous users. Um, you know, is it, a, is it a true Slack replacement? I'm sure it's missing a huge uh, number of uh, features that Slack has, you know, third-party integrations, App Store. I mean, these days, Slack, we don't just use Slack as Slack. We use Slack together with this ecosystem of integrations. I'm sure uh, that might be coming sometime in the future for this product, but not now. And then uh, like Slack Connect and other things. So anyways, if you just need a simple alternative or you need a place, uh, they, they give some use cases here, like you need an internal chat uh, that's maybe, um, you know, for executives or you need a backup for when Slack crashes and, you know, uh, that has happened uh, regularly, then this could be a thing. Curious some people's thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I think... <laughs> What well, has been a consistent theme to me um, with at least over the last couple of years with every DHH post is that he completely sets aside and or discounts uh, the operational costs of doing these things. Um, and I, like to, to run like servers. So like people have have mission critical things that revolve around around Slack. You know, they have integrations, they have, like you were talking about, they have, you know, um, chat ops that you can approve things, you can have, you know, all of these other things, right? Like just that are tied into your, into your ecosystem, which means that they become mission critical systems. And like the, the cost of high availability, backups, scaling, data protection, security, patch management, uh, monitoring, you know, dot, 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 um, for all of these things is certainly not $299 once. Uh, and when you start looking at what it means is you're building, like the reason that SaaS was, has always been so attractive to everyone is that the, the pitch is that you can offload all of those things to other people because they aren't your core competencies. Like figuring out like your business doesn't make money by like running servers to make sure that your chat product runs. Your business run makes money by selling your product or selling your own SaaS solution that you sell to your customers or, you know, whatever it is out there. And like just completely ignoring total cost of ownership of these things and comparing the SaaS price to the one-time price is disingenuous. And he's not a dumb man, so he clearly knows this and he's doing it intentionally, right? <laughs> so I think that that's, uh, that, that that's really like, that's really irksome to me, like in every one of these posts yeah, that he's written uh, recently. Fair point. <laughs> Vlad, you raised your hand. He's not ignoring it. He's just stupid. Uh, somebody put it 
very nice on Twitter. Bitcoin did a speed run of the last 30 years of finance and banking in like five years. And they were like, oh, that's why we do that in finance. That's why we have <laughs> transfers that take that long. Or that's why we have all these controls. Uh, DHS is speedrunning the last 15 years of how to build and deliver technical products. And the problem is that he's ignoring everything that we've learned, but he has a platform and he's spewing bullshit. A short example would be the idiotic way that they do versioning. Like, yeah, this is just, uh, we tried to sell tech product like this. Like you pay for it once, you own it, good luck. Well, the problem with that is, it's a one-time thing, so it's not sustainable. That means you are then incentivized to only give Campfire V1 uh, bug fixes. That's it. Any major feature is going to go into Campfire 2, which is going to be released two years from now, because you cannot release Campfire 1 now and Campfire 2, that's going to be 299 yet again in like six months. So you're going to keep all the new features that you want to release, you're going to basically gatekeep them and not release them for a year until Campfire 2 comes out. And that is bullshit. And we don't want to do that. And that's not good for the users. And we've learned that that pricing model and that business strategy doesn't typically work for product like this and all that stuff. Like These are this tech business lessons that we have learned and that we know. He is willfully ignoring them and spewing bullshit. And it's dumb and stupid. All right. Well, there you have it. <laughs> Venkat, you had something to add to this? Uh, yeah. One question, one comment. I'll go with the comment first. This whole pricing model reminds me of WordPress plugins, where you pay up front and you kind of own right. it. Um, and to Vlad and Matt's point, like, doesn't usually work out uh, in the long run if you have a serious company or serious business or anything beyond for fun, I guess. Um, and then the other, uh, I guess, a question, what do you, what are folks here using as a fallback to uh, their primary chat system? So whether you use Slack or whatever it might be, or uh, Teams, or any teams here, especially given all of us are in the SRE DevOps, like InfraSpace, when stuff goes down, obviously you want to be able to communicate with your team. Um, we like... time all the way. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm actually using Campfire. I love it. <laughs> I was thinking honestly for 300 bucks it might not be a bad idea to use as a backup um, I'll just see if it integrates well with, with the SSO and all of that but um, curious to know if anyone's uh, got well, I, I mean uh, Google chat right that that's that's never that's always surprises me in the end I forget that we have it but when we've had outages in Slack suddenly I start getting all these Google chat messages so yeah, I think I think one of the interesting things is that the good thing about Slack is that it's out of band from all the crap that you're running. Like, like if you if something you break if you break your infrastructure, you're not yeah. going to affect your chat platform because it's still up and running. You can still communicate with everyone, right? I mean, I, I guess technically, like PagerDuty and some of those other things also have incident management that has real time. Um, you know, chat abilities as well. So that might be another good, um, another good choice as a backup in case Slack were down. Oh, I didn't realize that PagerDuty. Uh, sorry, did you say PagerDuty or which? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. When you in, in there. basically when you you declare an incident, like there's a real time like 
chat around the incident and everyone can chime in on what's going on and you know talk about it and paste logs and you know all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so you just create an incident for when Slack is down and then you transfer yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that sounds like a pretty good option actually. We're using Ops Genie off to see if they have that or if we should just migrate. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Yeah. And uh yeah Vlad, there is this thing called a phone. You can also use those uh and text message. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know how it is on your teams, but I feel like a phone. Uh, like now, you need to have that directory for it, or if you already have it synced from your company directory, that's great. We're we're a pretty small team, so we don't have that set up, unfortunately. I do recommend, like, I this has bit me before that I realized because you know every, that that's how we work these days. Like you know, we we never meet each other in person. Uh, you know, the, the job interview wasn't over the phone. It was over Zoom. And, you know, two years can pass and you've never had to call the person until that time you have to call the person and you don't have their number. So uh, we've made a point of getting everyone's uh, 411 into our system so we can access them uh, when that. Good idea. We have a basic Google Doc. We should probably check on that and see if it's up to date. Yeah, and if if you have a small team, just ask everyone, "Hey, what's your number?" <laughs> Stick it in your phone, <laughs> and then you can start a group chat with everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't have to be that that complicated. <laughs> That's true. Okay, uh, so yeah, that was that announcement. Jumping back up here uh, to a utility called Chalk that I saw. Um, this is not something we've had to solve or address, but I thought it was interesting because I hadn't seen as any other tool yet in this category um, come across my radar. So uh, this is a way of, uh, it seems like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like watermarking almost your artifacts with information about, uh, or metadata uh, with uh, perhaps where that uh, artifact originated or was created. And then you can extract or read that, that metadata out. I'm not sure how it does this in a generic way. And uh, I don't see kind of what types of artifacts it supports. Um, I just know it says any artifact and that seems like a bold claim. So I don't understand it. Might be, it might just write some sort of binary thing in it, in the metadata, I don't know. Right, but okay, so my artifact is a markdown file. Is it, what's it gonna do? It's gonna, you know, markup the markup um, or, you know, I understand Docker images that have annotations. I understand yeah. images which have metadata like uh, like like JPEGs and PNGs, et cetera. Um, uh, I'm not sure about tarballs or some of the ar other archive formats. They might have that ability. Um, so yeah. yeah. Well, but especially if you're using any kind of like, um checksumming, it could have a problem too. I don't know how to get around that. Yeah, so just curious to learn more. Uh, somebody was asking, is this related to SBOMs? And yeah, uh, this is in some uh, way related to that to make it easier to pull down a, a graph of uh, all the relationships. I got confused when I first saw it because Chalk is a library for like writing to the console in uh Oh, in it is. In term brace lit or was it was that one of theirs or I don't know if they're the ones who make it, but it's it's definitely uh they, they might be. I just don't remember. I just know that it's been around for a while. Hmm. All right. 
Uh, Venkat, you rate and uh, Jonathan, well, Venkat, you first, I guess. Then Jonathan. Uh, sorry, I think that was from last time. So oh, okay. Jonathan. Uh, I just wondered, uh, since we're talking yes bombs again, I wanted to get a quick sense. We we are getting customers starting to ask us to disclose our complete vulnerability chains, complete build chains. Um, we have not done so. We have pushed off on that. But I'm wondering whether we have folks on the uh, in the community that are like really getting requirements that the full S bomb be provided or similar kind of metadata. Uh, reports, uh, auditable reports, that sort of thing. Is this a new thing that's really getting serious? I think there was a conversation related or surrounded to this in the compliance channel uh, on SweetOps, but I know you're a member of that channel, so not adding much. We don't hear it coming from our, our customers yet, um, so if that adds anything. Yeah, I know there's a new federal, you know, request or best practice, but we've only been asked a couple of times and we've explicitly said, uh, no, thank you. We're not going to do that. And we've gotten away with it so far. Yeah. Okay. Out of, in case anyone's looking for a solution, um, a couple of years ago when I spoke to the Artifactory team, they seemed to have a really good SBOM uh, solution where you could just basically use them as a proxy for all of your all of your tool chain and then they'll automatically uh, mm. create a spawn for you i'm not sure if it gives you the level of granularity that you'll need to be compliant for these new things but uh, it looked like it was, it was pretty cool if you want to see what licenses are being used across your stack or what those dependencies are i don't know of any limits at that time uh, that the, they weren't covering that particular uh, package dependency management tool yeah, Artifactory, boy, they're perfectly positioned for this. I wonder if they have lobbyists or something that. Uh... <laughs> the the where S bombs really get good use is like if you're required to report out how many CVEs you have and what the severity of them are, like you know you're you're getting a accreditation of some kind of run in a government system, and they they say, hey, if you have any high CVEs, you can't you can't get in the system. Um, you know, I've seen people spend days upon days just like manually building a Excel spreadsheet with, you know, these are all the, you know, the libraries we use, the dependencies, the containers, the tools, here's the versions of them all. Now I have to go, you know, manually search the government, uh, NIST NVD database to go find all the CVEs and see if I'm vulnerable to any of them with, Something like, you know, an S build an S bomb and then scan it is 10 seconds. You know, you, you run SIFT on your project, it builds you an S bomb, you run gripe on the SIFT S bomb, and it gives you that entire report. And then you can put it into your CI pipeline and say, hey, gripe, if you find any highs in my project, make the pipeline red. And Gripe is really good at doing stuff like that. That's the power of S-bombs. Yeah, it looks nice. 
Yeah, you uh, you must be dealing with this at uh, Defense Unicorns, right, Andrew? Every day, every day, all of our stuff builds. You know, if we're if we're building an application of any kind, or you know, putting a a Docker image through like a security pipeline, it's absolutely running Sift and Gripe. Because we have to provide that stuff in our ATO documentation as required. Yeah, if anyone's interested, uh, Andrew works at this company, Defense Unicorns. Uh, they have an interesting product, uh, probably lots of experience. Just curious uh, on that environment, Andrew, if you have like this random Python package that you want to use, does that just set off a lot of, lot of alarms? Like if you want to, like if there's, if I wrote a Python package and published it in a GitHub repo and then you wanted to use it, um, does that usually just trigger a bunch of alarms given it's new or I don't have like certain, like, is there more of a processor environment, I guess, is the question, to be able to use um, random, or if you want to call it random, open source? Uh, probably not. The government is, I will, you know, uh, the government is definitely a lot of kind of security theater. Um, you know, if you write some random, you know, library that nobody's ever heard of and you add it to your application, it's obviously not going to have any CVEs. Um which means it won't show up on the report, which means, you know, you might be green, your your report might be green, even if you aren't actually green um, in reality. So it, it's so important to, you know, do defense in depth, have actual runtime security using like new vector or whatever. Um, you know, we, we uh, the DOD several years ago wrote a, uh, they call it the DOD Enterprise DevSecOps Reference Design, and it, it it defines a platform that you run on top of Kubernetes. It's Istio. It's um, Devs DOD Enterprise DevSecOps Reference Design. Uh, it defines a platform on top of Kubernetes that's like, you know, you have to have a service mesh with Istio, you have to have, uh, or you don't have to use Istio, but you have to have a service mesh, you have to have, you know, runtime security, you have to, um, you know, do like SSO, you have to do MFA, you know, and it, it, it lays all that out. So there's a, there's a government software factory called Platform One, they build uh, a product called Big Bang. Um, my company took Big Bang and made it better, basically, um, so that you can, you know, just run all that on top of, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a <laughs> advertisement for my company or anything, but um, that's, it's really just one layer of the stack is doing like that kind of security scan. Cause you're going to be adding in like, that's not the only thing they're going to make you do. You know, they're going to make you do like code quality scan SAST with SonarCube or whatever. SonarCube's going to, you know, do a deep inspect of all your packages and stuff and look for things it knows about. Um, you know, there's all kinds yeah, of stuff. Think it works. Uh, yeah, I think that. Yeah. Well, I was just going to add really quickly that static analysis tools uh, are actually really good at like looking at your Python library that isn't known anywhere and identifying things that it may be doing that are suspicious um, and flagging them like 
like sneak as uh, or snick or however you pronounce SNY day. I can never, I, I don't know how, uh, how to do it, but uh, like they have a pretty good static analysis um, tooling that will identify anything that might be a potential vulnerability in, you know, in a bunch of different languages. Uh, Andrew, Andrew, to the... I saw you had your hand up earlier. Uh, was there a question from you related to this or something else? Or oh me? Uh, yeah, I sorry, was... I, I said your wrong name. I had the wrong last name there. Um, no, I was just going to ask Andy uh, if he had any um, uh, links to papers about using SIFT, SBOM, and Gripe. But I I googled it myself, and I think I found some some stuff. Cool. Also, I can look on your your Defense Unicorn site. Thank you. I wanted to jump in and to, I don't remember who asked the initial question, Matt, Andy, don't remember. But uh, there are requirements starting to come up for folks doing more sensitive data about what dependencies you're using and how mature they are. And I don't know exactly if they made it into law yet, but a bunch of uh, companies that are working with more sensitive data think public utilities like energy providers, water providers, stuff like that, they got the nudge nudge to, hey, you need to really clean up your dependency chain. No random uh, dependencies that are one-man shops that were posted on GitHub like five years ago and that's it and things like that. It's still very, very new, but I've seen requests and companies start to clean that up. But for most people, that's at least five years out, I would say. All right. Well, thank you for all that input. Uh, I guess we'll move on to one of the next announcements. Um, was that uh, DEF CON was canceled, but has uh, come back now. Um, it's interesting. I mean, ever since I was in high school, uh, it has been at Caesar's Palace uh, in Vegas, and now it is there no longer. But I think uh, based on this, it sounds like a pretty great uh, opportunity. They found a new home at the Las Vegas Convention Center, which is much larger, and uh, I guess new fronts for all the kind of uh, jokes, uh, jokery that goes on including the largest LCD. I'm going to, how long is it going to take for that to get hacked? Uh, Cloudflare, uh, this is old news by now. I'm sure everyone has seen this in their LinkedIn feed, et cetera. Um, they came out with an additional write-up on kind of uh, what they saw happened. And Apple introduces a new programming language called PKL or Pickle. Not sure how you pronounce it. Yeah, it's um, Pickle. Yeah, kind of uh, makes me think of uh, Q a little bit uh, in its purpose. Um, it you know it looks pretty clean like this, uh, as written. Uh, HCL started out this way as well, and it was pretty clean. And then you know uh, after many, many iterations, it just devolves into what it is today. Uh, Matt can feel that. <laughs> he was just working on some really ugly uh, map construction in HCL. 
anyways, um, I don't know how I feel about it. You know, I can understand the desire to keep moving things forward. And this is looks interesting, but uh, I don't know, nothing that I think we're going to jump on right now. I think if you if you scroll up, uh, I think it's at the top of this thing um, where they talk about it. Um, the first, the, those two paragraphs, the whatever, the second, the third, the one that you have highlighted and the one after it, um, are actually uh, very reminiscent of the conversation we just had about trying to express very complex infrastructures in yaml and why they created this um based you know based on the things that i was saying and then they start to say now you you have a need to make it dry so you add special properties mm -hmm. you have you start to add like loops and create a special dsl for it and it's like you know all these things um and at the end of the day that's not the best thing so they created this you know it's kind of funny that the timing of uh, the release of this. Yeah, that is interesting. And ultimately this can reduce to or compile to basically JSON or YAML or something, I believe, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it does. It basically takes all of that as an intermediate language and compiles to yeah. almost any kind of uh, configuration language that you could think of. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. It's if you read it, it's interesting because they they do talk about kind of a lot of the journey that we've gone through in Atmos about building invalidations and yeah imports and inheritance and like all that kind of stuff. It's like the the journey is described very well of uh, of a lot of the things we've done in Atmos. So yeah, all right. Uh, let's see, we talked about that one. This one was just interesting to me personally. I didn't realize that Apple has a special edition of the iPhone that is jailbroken uh, specifically for researchers so they can uh, pen test inside of the walled garden of the iPhone. So uh, let's see what else. Yeah, this one here. Sorry, oh, sorry. On. I was just gonna say, interestingly, my uh, my friend is a security researcher, and he lives down the street, and he he has one of those, and it um, it's he told me that the like the licensing agreement is crazy. Like basically, Apple owns it, and at any time they can ask you to return it, and there's like crazy fines and things if you don't. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that you get. Like it's something that they lend you to do like research, basically as part of this whole thing. And it like, you know, you can have your name like personalized or etched or used to be able to at least on like iPods and iPhones and stuff like that. Like, like on the back it's engraved and it says like, you know, property of Apple and all that kind of stuff still okay. on the, the back of it. So I thought you were going to say it has the name of the researcher on there. So if he loses it, it's uh, very clear who. Yeah. Vlad's asking me, no, no, he doesn't have one at home. He just lives down the street from me and told me that he has one. <laughs> he doesn't I don't I think Vlad's also right there's some sort of like crazy like oh, security controls around it. like oh, right. yeah like where you're allowed to use it and everything like that so yeah I am very out of the loop on the uh, iPhone security device but I know that if you ever get access to any Apple hardware or previous stuff it's very 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 well 
defined and you need to keep it in a room the room needs to have no window they need to like there is a very very intense procedure for that and yeah. i was curious that was... like if he had one at home i was like huh they really open stuff no, up no, no. Was... <laughs> he i only i talked to him a lot because he lives down the street from me i wasn't suggesting that the apple like device is down the street from me um I uh, I have not actually played with it, but he, my point was he was telling me about all the crazy like requirements around it, and I think like what you were saying, Glenn. I think it has some like physical like requirements around where you're allowed to keep it and everything as well. Hmm. And they can ask for it back anytime, and you have a certain period of time to comply with that to get it back to them. Um. Last, uh, almost at the end of announcements here. Uh, this was not the one I meant to click on. This one here. So um, last year, uh, Nitro Code, aka RB, uh, posted that um, you know, asking if uh, more maintainers could be added to the project. It looks like uh, that didn't really go anywhere, um, and there were some recent commits back in December. I only bring it up because um, I. I was really impressed by this project um, over the last uh, year or two. You know, they invested a lot. They moved it into its own organization, gave it a, a robust um, documentation uh, portal. Uh, it has a pluggable interface now, so you can write Terraform doc plugins. So they invested a lot into the project. I was just wondering what happened because um, it definitely has slowed down in terms of merging pull requests. And we have a pretty simple um, bug fix uh, that we opened up that causes Terraform docs to crash if uh, output values are null. And uh, yeah, we haven't been able to get a hold of anyone. We've uh, tried uh, through GitHub, we've tried through LinkedIn, we've tried through um, other means, but uh, we were really hoping to get this uh, PR merged and Still, if anybody knows somebody at the who is a committer on Terraform Docs, please pass them our way or share the PR. I'll post that in the, uh, in the Zoom chat. Oh, it right. says someone approved the the changes last week. I think anyone can approve. I think anyone can approve. But you know, uh, they're not merged. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm just suspecting that's what happened here. Well, let's see. Yeah. The workflow requires uh, approval from a maintainer. So you have to be like a core maintainer to approve the workflow. But... Yeah. So I thought this was an interesting little uh, pet project. Uh, it caught my attention. I forget where I saw it. Um, but it's a interactive chat with your Terraform state. So, you know, if you don't have better things to do on a uh, Saturday night, you can always talk to your Terraform state file. And, uh, I thought at first, hmm, I don't know how useful that would be, but then I saw like, um, you know, uh, like this question, how does the, uh, AKS load, uh, the Federation secret from EKS? And then it was able to extract that uh, from the Terraform state uh, and express it quite intelligently. So yeah. I don't know how it works. I'll ask it, what is the secret? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Since that secret is in there and I bet uh, it could be coaxed into telling you. Yeah, and now the, uh, and now the model knows about your secrets. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All your passwords are belong to GPT. As uh, Michael said, hey, Jonathan, you uh, raise your hand. Yeah, I just wanted to say I've been using some um, generative AI to uh, attempt to answer uh, a GRC questions that come our way. Um, and we're using a commercial tool, Vanta. Uh, we have lots of uh, source material, not really enough yet, I guess. Um, but we're, you know, we're finding very often these tools answer enthusiastically and completely wrongly. <laughs> question um, that has any plausible answer, they really try hard to answer, um, and they're very enthusiastic and yeah. often just absolutely counterfactual. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Especially the more complicated the data. What were you going to say, Matt? I was going to just say I have some like commentary on that. Is um, at one point in my career, I was in like a fairly authoritative position over like a group of engineers, and I got some feedback from a colleague because I actually found that I was doing that um, personally, um, where I was saying something that I meant it. I meant it to be expressed as like an opinion or an option or a something for debate, but because of my seniority and the way I was expressing it, that um, it came across as, a, as if I were expressing it as fact. Um, and it's actually really dangerous um, in, you know, in group speaks when you have trust um, to, to do that. So now that we have computers doing that, um, it's even more dangerous. So yeah. like I, I made a really um, conscious effort to start to, to point out things that were my opinion or, were you know were a premise that I had or something like that rather than like authoritative um and now that we have these models that are doing you know just what you said it it really bugs me that like I see that a lot like like I asked I asked ChatGPT yesterday some question about like something in in Terraform and it gave me this whole like if then else um syntax to do something and I was like and I was like Terraform doesn't have if that else and it was like oh you are correct but the way it said it it was like this is absolutely the way to solve this problem and I was <laughs> like oh, I was like what the hell are you talking about <laughs> but because I had the knowledge to push back and challenge it like I could do that but um if you're if you're less experienced or you know don't have as much subject matter expertise and you take these AI models answers as you know as fact it's, it can be really dangerous so yeah, I don't know. I don't know how we solve that going forward, but uh, you know, it needs a confidence score with its uh, with its answer or something like that. I, I just I think that was really funny or uh, or some show of humility. Like, yeah, very very common amongst engineers, myself included. Very confident about our answers, even though we're totally wrong. So not not I mean yeah. not far off from what GPT is doing. Uh, yeah, I, so maybe it is really mimicking humans. Yeah, it is. It's just <laughs> exactly where did it learn it from? Uh, yeah, I was uh, just going to piggyback on what Matt was saying. Uh, I was using uh, ChatGPT to generate Terraform, and it was injecting JavaScript functions into the Terraform. And I mean, I could see right away, like, that's not valid Terraform. But an inexperienced person or somebody who's trying to learn Terraform with the tool, they're gonna, you know, go ahead and take that as fact and run it. And then they're gonna get a funky error, 
and they're going to spend another two or three days trying to fix it. Maybe they go back to chat GPT and they do another session saying, tell me why this code is wrong, you know, but it, it still, it just kind of slows them down that way. But my whole, and I know this isn't necessarily the point of the conversation here, but um, for people who worry about chat GPT or AI taking their jobs, I say forget about it because number one, you still got to train the the model. And then number two, like you were saying, the confidence or validation, you got to look at what it gives you and know whether it's correct or not. And and then number three, definitely how to apply it or whatever. So I think there's always going to be jobs for practitioners and technologists that know the technology and use AI as a tool to implement it. Um. Vlad just shared this um, project out of Amazon called Ref Checker that detects hallucinations. I just, I, uh, yeah, it sounds too good to be true. Like the the like the things that were supposed to detect if something was written using AI, right? I I don't. No, this is more like okay, we're gonna connect LLMs with um, a classic knowledge graph or something like that to validate oh, okay. what it's saying. They had a bunch of papers published on this, not only Amazon uh, Science, but a bunch of other people too. LLMs are basically getting integrated. It's now ish a question of trade-offs. Like, is it still worth it or are we better yet investing more in the knowledge graphs and things like that? Mm -hmm. I wish they would uh, I wish they would automatically run this on X posts, tweets, whatever we call them these days. That would be great. Oh, um, <laughs> like half of what people write on X is is a hallucination <laughs> you know, one way or the other so uh not not generative hallucinations but actual people writing writing yeah. things that are that are not factually correct so yeah, just like, that would be hallucinations in general <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's funny and let's see uh last one that I got and we're out of time for today, basically, is uh, TAP by Seal.io. It's a way to patch your Terraform resources. So basically, they have a TAP, they have their own markup uh, in, in using HCL. And you say what you want it to do, uh, add these resources to this thing, uh, remove this from this thing, etc. And uh, you can run it. I guess it's not dissimilar from... I think I forget there was uh, there there's uh, one or there's one or two people in Japan that have been writing some really cool little utilities for like migrating resources or manipulating Terraform files, but I just don't remember uh, the uh, the person right now. You can do most of this with um, with move blocks these days now. I think this is actually manipulating the the structure of the HCL itself. Just state, right? Yeah, it would be helpful if they showed the before oh, and after. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, assume maybe I misunderstood. Like they say, it's like said for HCL is uh, my interpretation of it, but I could be totally off. I see. Yeah. 
there there's another tool that uh that does this too that i used for something at, at cloud posse but i can't remember what <laughs> yeah okay well that's the end of my announcements um i did have one question but we really don't have time for it today so i guess maybe i'll just also uh alex uh, we ran out of time um to talk about this as well so uh let's just bring it up next week if that works for you um the uh the, the one i want to talk also about next week just teeing it off because it's a pretty quick one to maybe introduce is how are larger open source organizations managing approvals, testing of pull requests without using, um, without adding people to the actual organization? The best example of this is uh, Kubernetes, which has test infra, and test infra has a project called Prow. Prow has a bunch of commands you can run, like slash test all, and it kicks off the tests. But that's in Jenkins, and it is very hyper opinionated, like to the Kubernetes project, is my understanding. Um, does anybody know of any tool or project like this, or what solutions would work? Let's. Uh, uh, but I'm not gonna uh, open the can of worms right now. So we'll talk about it next week uh, some more. And uh, Alex has a question for next week on uh, tightly on, oops, what is the current science in running database migrations? Do you do it with your application deployment? Do you treat them uh, as a separate dependency deployed uh, with its own life cycle separately? Um, so we'll cover that next week as well. So with that said, gonna jump back into slide mode here and Conclude, that concludes uh, office hours for this week. Thank you all for joining. We'll be posting a recording of this session to our YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash cloudposse in a few hours to get it. Uh, we have a Slack team. Go to slack.cloudposse.com. Uh, a lot of great members uh, all participating in today's office hours are there. We have an office hours channel. Um, good place to tee up your questions for uh, next week. To register for our live office hours, go to cloudposse.com slash office hours. Again, cloudposse.com slash office hours. Uh, you'll get an invitation to your inbox. And if you're curious about working with Cloud Posse and if we can move the needle for you at your organization, that's easy. Go to cloudposse.com slash quiz, answer a few quick questions, and you could book a meeting with me directly. Look forward to talking to you soon. Take care.